Agencies across the federal government are turning to applied science and technology to modernize and improve mission delivery. We'll be presenting a series of interviews through 2022 with federal executives overseeing programs and meeting challenges with science and technology. Today's discussion is Implementing an AI Plan, sponsored by Noblis. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Welcome and thanks for joining us for part two of our discussion, Implementing an AI Plan, sponsored by Noblis. My guests today are Chris Barnett, the Chief Technology Officer at Noblis, Taka Ariga is the Chief Data Scientist and Director of the Innovation Lab at the Government Accountability Office. Rajiv Upal is the Chief Information Officer for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And Jesse Rollins, the AI Strategic Officer at the Defense Logistics Agency. And let's begin, and I'd like to ask the federal guests here for a moment, what are some of the things you're actually thinking about in AI or some projects that are promising underway or maybe some recent deployments? Uh, Jesse, we'll start with you. Yeah, so we've been doing a lot of work on DLA side with logistics, uh, you know, demand planning, uh, supply chain, uh, you know, vendor reliability. And those projects are really important, but what's more important to me is setting up that AI ecosystem so we can get these projects through kind of an AI life cycle quickly. So for me as the strategic officer, I'm really focusing on, do we have the data in place? Do we have the infrastructure and tools? Do we have the experts? and the data scientists to facilitate these projects? And do we have that governance structure, right? When I speak of governance for AI, you know, do we have the knowledge management? Do we have the risk mitigation? So setting up this kind of AI end-to-end -end ecosystem, so whatever project we want to take on in the future, we can get through that pipeline quickly, we can iterate, we can experiment, and we can learn more importantly on what we've done in the past. And I imagine there are counterparts in industry, you know, Walmarts or Costco's or those types of outfits that also have big and again, large volume issues with supply base and getting things from point A to point B to where they be, where they need to be. Is that something you've looked at also to see what your industry counterparts are doing? Yeah, it's definitely something we consider. I think one of the biggest differences is, you know, when people compare us to Amazon or Walmart, uh, it's the risk tolerance. You know, you know, if Walmart runs out of toilet paper, it's no biggie. Uh, you know, if a warfighter runs out of a critical part, that's a different problem. And it's also the demand cycle. You know, uh, no one can really predict the demand of the, of the defense industry per se. You know, we don't know when we're going to get into engagement. We don't know specifically when we're going to, you know, go to war. And so it's very important when we create these models, you know, that we plan to mitigate that risk. You know, so we've been training models on the past 20 years of data. Great. Does that past 20 years of data reflect what we think is going to be the future of conflict for us? So we have to be a lot more careful than these other logistics organizations. That may look like DLA, but the risk appetite uh, is completely different. Sure, I imagine, say, if the last 20 years in warfare was taking place in warm environments, and now we're out of the warm environment, and it could be the cold environment, that would really make the data questionable, or at least raise the need to bring in more data related to whatever cold weather logistics needs there are. Is that a good way to summarize it? Absolutely, yeah. And the platforms are changing, right? The location is changing. The way we conduct warfare is changing. So it's really hard to train and develop these models because they may look good, you know, when you grade them. They're like, oh, they do great over the past 20 years. But, you know, we're not fighting the Cold War anymore. You know, maybe we won't be in fighting an insurgency in the future. So we really have to stress test these models. We really have to take into account, account the risk, you know, 
using synthetic data, stressing these models, and most importantly, you know, planning for when the model breaks or deteriorates. And Rajiv, I guess in some ways, things are changing at CMS as the whole general model of repayment for health services shifts from the, the uh, transactional basis to the outcomes type basis. And so what are some of the projects you have going at, uh, in AI at CMS and, and, and how are you choosing the data to make sure those are on track? That's a great question, Tom. Uh, as you pointed out, there's definitely use of AI and uh, within payment models and the kinds of payment models that are used that we're trying with our innovation center at CMS. Besides that, uh, AI is definitely used at CMS for freight, uh, you know, fraud, waste, and abuse kind of applications. Uh, one of the other places we've been recently experimenting with AI, as you all, as you know, in uh, for all federal systems before they can go to production, they have to go through an ATO process or an authority to operate, and that's a compliance process that takes a while, a few months, if uh, if not more, sometimes to get through it. And we've been using and experimenting with AI of how we can make that uh, faster. How can we reduce the burden? So when people are documenting certain controls, is there a way for us to use natural language processing to look across our database of controls and say, hey, you're trying to you know, document this control. Um, here, is, here are some of the samples that AI can discover and provide a pathway to get getting these things faster. So again, as I was speaking before, now how can we augment the humans so that their, uh, the work that they're doing is faster and reduces some of the burden? So these are some of the use cases of AI. And as Jesse mentioned, there's a significant amount of effort in our infrastructure. And by infrastructure, I don't mean just the uh, software and hardware infrastructure, it's also the human infrastructure as we talked before significant investment into, we have a workforce upscaling program that we call workforce resilience. And we offer many tracks for our staff to get upskilled on human-centered design, which is an important component of how we do things. Uh, data science track is also one of the other tracks that we offer product management and uh, a few others. So again, how do we invest in our workforce so they have a better understanding of what AI is um, so we can use appropriate technologies. Then beyond that, uh, setting up the infrastructure, we're working on a platform, kind of like the platform that the Air Force has called Platform One. So CMS is working on something similar. So when people want to build systems and applications, they have a ready-made platform that they can work on that uh, allows them to move things much faster. Uh, similarly, on the data side, we have been working over the past uh, year plus on a data lake, data mesh platform, so that when we talk about using data, and you know, when it, when you're at CMS, you're talking about, hey, can I get claims data, beneficiary data, of, of course, all that within the confines of privacy and security, um, but getting to the source of truth, making sure that we have a data lake and a data mesh that enables all that. So these are. Um, you know, sort of to Jesse's point, focusing on the infrastructure so that when we start uh, using AI and models to be able to predict and you know, help reduce burden, we have some of the uh, underlying infrastructure taken care of. All right, and before I get to talk on some of what's going on in the Innovation Lab, I wanted to ask you, Chris, I hear a couple of themes here. One is really having a good foundation or ecosystem of the tools 
and the brain power and the processes in place before you deploy things. Mm -hmm. And the other is the idea of augmenting the human, augmenting the person, as opposed to, say, augmenting a process, where maybe that's the same thing. Is that what you hear? I mean, is that a good, looking across the agencies, it seems like these themes are, are pretty common. They are. Uh, you know, I think, I think the, um, the setup of the infrastructure and the governance processes really transcends various agencies and departments. I mean, they want to have a, a good feel for whether it's, you know, the infrastructure piece or the software in place or the trained personnel, that we have an idea for how to deliver kind of a, that comprehensive service element. You know, the thing we're seeing, too, is um, there's certainly a readiness to adopt an experiment across the various uh, players. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, someone mentioned, I think, pilots earlier. You know, getting a few base hits here, here and there on a few simple pilots, whether you're automating business processes or maybe it's uh, the automation, automation of consumption of documents through nat natural language processing, et cetera, to really start augmenting the, the person's task, making their, their work easier. You know, starting small and then and branching out from there. We're also seeing a lot of willingness to share data sets with, with industry. And so that's helpful to us, certainly, because um, it really, the training of the models, whether it's labeled or, or pre-labeled data, is critical. And, you know, while we can generate our own, buy our own, et cetera, borrow, um, when we can work with a partner, a government partner, uh, that can provision data for us, it makes our job a lot easier to start building prototypes and getting the results faster. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think, you know, you're hearing a lot of themes here that I think are transcending all across um, uh, the government space. And Taka, before I ask you about the Innovation Lab, I just want to return to something that Jesse mentioned, and I know that's something that's near and dear to your heart, and that is the idea of synthetic data for training algorithms. What is that, and, and how does it work? And then I want to hear about some of the AI things going on in the lab. Yeah, I mean, the idea of using synthetic data is when a sort of empirical data set is not available, you can use synthetic data as an augmentation. So sometimes that is done through, uh, let's say, missing data elements, or if there's elements of a bias that you're trying to mitigate, you could use synthetic data as a proxy to achieve the kind of performance that you're looking to attain. Um, for us in an innovation lab, we have used a synthetic model to really demonstrate the impacts of different kinds of control on improper payments, so that different program office can and calibrate based on facts and circumstances of the program, they can understand a trade-off decision. So it's not just about improper payments being in being a preventive, but also proper payments being deterred. That is a sort of delicate balance. Um, but for GAO, you know, AI is a, is a very good example of balancing act that we have to do between understanding the accountability challenges of emerging capabilities like AI, but also how do we ourselves adopt those sort of opportunities. Uh, so from an oversight, foresight, insight perspective, GEO has done a number of technology assessment looking at how AI is applied in healthcare setting and drug discovery setting. We've done work looking into facial recognition technology, and we will continue to do these type of uh, oversight, foresight, insight work. For the innovation lab, you know, I talked about our, our sort of um, experimentation into natural language processing capabilities. We're developing a set of precedence paper because the way that GAO conducts our business is based on generally accepted government auditing standards. So that doesn't mean all techniques are appropriate. We certainly have a bias towards transparency, toward linearity, uh, but want to make sure that our teams understand uh, the appropriateness of those machine learning techniques in different contexts. 
Um, and the another area that we're exploring is an, uh, the intersection of cybersecurity versus AI. Uh, we talk about zero trust a lot, and, and usually those conversations focus on humans, uh, but it's very easy to assign some sort of root credential to the AI that are running behind this, uh, the scene. So how do we make sure that that zero trust extend to algorithms as well? And uh, Rajiv touched on this. Uh, we certainly within GAO have a, a robust data science platform that speaks to the scalability, containerization, or orchestration of AI solutions, uh, but also making sure on the front end we have a well-governed data uh, sort of framework so that when we talk about machine learning, it's not garbage in, garbage out. And then the last piece I'll just add is we're also pushing through a data literacy function to make sure that our workforce, instead of a yes, no kind of binary discussion, what comes out of AI typically is probabilistic. So how do you interpret a 67% likelihood of something happening? How do you narrate that conversation in, within our oversight product? I think that's an important element of absorptive function of AI uh, that both Rajiv and, and Jesse talked about. Yeah, so that idea of probabilistic outcomes feeds into the agency's need for risk management and how they apply technology and that seemed to go hand in hand there. Yeah, absolutely. And and so I, I talked about this touches on the procurement aspects as well, because you know it's it's you don't just go out and buy AI, right? Uh, you might develop products, you might develop services, you might have um, you know a consulting and, and other par industry partners to help you. But uh, how do we think about procurement of AI? How do we think about and, and the one aspects that we highlight this in the AI accountability framework is how do you deal with the continuous monitoring of AI? because machine learning these days are still quite fragile. You can't just deploy it and forget it. How do we deal with data drift? How do we deal with model drift? And as we scale between, let's say, experimentation into a nationwide deployment, does the AI solution still function as intended? More often than not, there are unintended consequences, and then certainly there's plenty of, of uh, intentional adversarial attack on AI. So I think all that is part of the, the enablement conversation. All right, we're going to take a short break on that note. My guests today are Taka Ariga. He's the Chief Data Scientist and Director of the Innovation Lab at the Government Accountability Office. Chris Barnett is the Chief Technology Officer at Noblis. Jesse Rowlands is the Strategic AI Officer at the Defense Logistics Agency. And Rajiv Upal is the Chief Information Officer for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. I'm Tom Temin. This panel discussion is implementing an AI plan sponsored by Noblis here on Federal News Network. Tackling national challenges that continue to rise and change rapidly can be difficult. Noblis can help. Noblis brings together the best of science, technology, and engineering to solve complex challenges, like improving transportation and infrastructure systems, countering threats from weapons of mass destruction, and enhancing the operability of naval surface ships. For 25 years, Noblis has been an innovator with the federal government, investing in advanced R&D, enriching lives, and making our nation safer. Noblis, for the best of reasons. Visit noblis.org to learn more. Welcome back to our panel discussion, Implementing an AI Plan, sponsored by Noblis here on Federal News Network. My guests today are Jesse Rowlands, the AI Strategic Officer at the Defense Logistics Agency, Rajiv Upal, the Chief Information Officer at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Taka Ariga is the Chief Data Scientist and Director of the Innovation Lab at the Government Accountability Office, and Chris Barnett, the Chief Technology Officer for Noblis. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. And I want to just talk a little bit more about the idea of selection, selection of data and data sources for training the algorithms just prior to deployment. Ataka mentioned you might need to augment your data with synthetic data, and maybe we could get a little idea of how you create synthetic data 
but I also wanted to hear from the agencies and from Chris on how you make sure that the data is going to give you the compliance, equity, fairness, and so on, plus the, the process outcomes that you hope for. So uh, maybe talk, just give us a minute on uh, synthetic data and how you, do you type away at it? How do you get it? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, so regardless of the type of data, a fundamental, I think, first step when it comes to AI is making sure that the data that you rely on is complete, is accurate. Otherwise, that learning process is, is not a, a whole lot of use. Uh, so we certainly rely on mission data. We certainly rely on open source data in, in developing our own machine learning capabilities. But oftentimes, we come across circumstances where there are gaps in the information, where we would like to augment that information with perhaps more sort of robust uh, idealize uh, social demographic distribution. So this is where based on sort of sound science, uh, sometimes we might uh, sort of impute certain type of data as a as not as a replacement of real data, but as an augmentation of existing data. Um, and sometimes that is sort of often helpful in mitigating potential bias that may be resident in the data. Um, and then in a, in a case of improper payment, this is wholly where uh, access to empirical data is actually very difficult to come by. So the only next best thing for us to do is develop a set of synthetic data using attributes that have been published through census, through NOAA, through many other uh, organizations out there to come up with the data sets for us to then run some uh, simulation model. Um, and, but I will caution the use of synthetic data has to be very carefully calibrated so that we don't end up over generalizing what an ideal state might look like based on a small sample that we're, we're sort of running on. Sure, we've all heard horror stories of where we got great outcomes to date and we apply the same data and it gives you precisely the wrong outcomes going to the future. And uh, Chris, you mentioned the idea that uh, early in the uh, first segment that there might be portability of data sets for training algorithms from agency to agency and that that's a good way to go if something exists already. So what makes a good training set and how do you know that you're going to be okay by by transferring a data from set from one agency to the other, and that they too will get some some good outcomes. Boy, do you have do you have an hour to, to answer that question? Yeah, that that that's that is a good one. So, I, I think a lot of it uh, comes down to um, I guess it, it depends too on the on the type of data set that's under observation, right? Um, so, data sets that have more predictable fields such as uh, protocol, network information, log information, generally speaking, can be replicated faster, transitioned faster. You can run, run them through models with, with a fairly high degree of certainty that, that the output will be, will be presented in a predictable fashion. Others, for example, imagery or video or sound files, your media, very, very, um, a lot of variability, right, in terms of those data sets and their accuracy. So you still find a lot of projects uh, you know, that, that uh, the prep work there can consume 80% of the time just getting that data labeled and, and presented and ready uh, for presentation but, or analysis. But, you know, once it is presented, I mean, depending on, on the data set itself and the underlying kind of is it is it imagery of firearms or traffic or weather or whatever the case may be, in some cases you can certainly port that data over to another project and to another project itself. You know, but the labeling piece will take time, you know, and, and we've been doing some early work in, in automated labeling of imagery, which um, you know some tools have shown uh, early promise in making that making that readily available, and of course some of the cloud providers have some very powerful capabilities in, in, in prepping data in that in that way as well to in, to make sure that it's it is portable and relatively um, presents some predictable outcomes. All right, and Rajiv, it's probably fair to say, and I'll ask this also to Jesse, that sometimes 
more data is not necessarily better, that you might need to subtract data. For example, in the famous case, you know, it produced great salespeople for a company, but then it started producing the same thing over and over again, which was a, a lack of, of uh, demographic diversity. So if you take out certain attributes from the database and leave others in, you might get more diversity because you have taken out something that was pulling the data in a certain direction. So how do you choose data sets and how do you choose what's not going into the algorithm? That's a very good point, Tom. The, it's really important as part of making sure that you have the right kind of training data. We, as this really can also boils down to the ethics, right? We have to make sure that we involve enough stakeholders so we can ask the question as to what kinds of data and attributes that we should be looking at, whether it's demographics, race, gender, all of the attributes, what are the things that we should look at, and then testing to see, do we have sufficient data for that represents all of those different attributes within our training set? So that's really important, and uh, that's something that we take very seriously because as as you all know, if the data is biased, the training, mo the, the models are gonna produce results that aren't really something that we should be depending upon. So it's really important that we take the time up front. The, the other place in to add to what Taco was saying, so we also had CMS have invested some of our uh, time and effort in creating models to generate synthetic data, which is for healthcare. Um, in addition, well, and there's not just for actually those synthetic data that we generated is more uh, with the idea of, well, we need data to test our systems when we are in development environment, for example. And we really don't want to put production data, like claims data and beneficiary data, in our lower environment. So we are pushing hard to use synthetic data or using uh, tokenization to tokenize the production data so you can never tell whose data it is because PII and PHI is really important concerns. So. These are some of the things that we've been trying to do to make sure that we, first of all, you know, may that we PII and PHI do not get exposed. So we make sure that the data is tokenized appropriately. And in cases where we don't have data, use models that can generate synthetic data. So that's sort of been uh, where we've been uh, spending our energies. Okay, and Jesse, comment on, again, the right training sets. Yeah, that's a complicated question. Uh, but, you know, when it comes to the to the business perspective, you know, right from the start, what's the business problem? You know, what's your current condition and performance? What's improvement look like? And can we measure it? Right, that's going back to the to the business analytics 101. Do you, can you effectively go back in time and look at the performance of your business or process or whatever we're trying to model? If you can't generate that data to give me the st descriptive statistics of how you're performing now, then I can't you know, put an AI model to help you predict the future. So that's kind of like the first litmus test when it comes to that initial data conversation from the business side. From the ethical side, you know, every AI model that I've seen go into production has had ethical complications, right? Even the most innocuous models are impacting people. Uh, so there's always that ethical component. And you know, some people are reluctant to do ethical training when it comes to, you know, your data scientists or your data engineers, right? Or your AI engineers. But I always counter, you know, look at all the other problem spaces that have ethical problems, medicine, finance, accounting, uh, contracting, HR, right? You name it. 
they all require special ethical considerations. AI data science, no different. So, you know, when you start these projects, you know, not just the business considerations of the data, but the AI ethical considerations of the data. And those ethical tests go all the way to deployment, you know, from the data to the training to the governance at the end. There's a full ethics framework that has to go through the entire process. Because the last thing you want is to throw away this model at the end. You know, this is an investment in the model upfront to make sure you don't pay the price at the end and you lose years of research or years of development. So ethics, you know, isn't just a back burner, it's a business risk to your model when you start this whole entire process. And Chris, because AI models have the quality of learning and evolving, that's what makes them artificial intelligence as opposed to just robotic process automation, then how do you make sure that you have a continuous feedback system to make sure that your results don't drift out of band over time? That would seem to be crucial. Yeah, there's a big, certainly thrust that we're seeing across um, federal space in explainability, really understanding how uh, AI systems are, are reaching the conclusions that they are. You know, and, and it's, it's, there's a lot of active research, certainly in academia there, a lot of models and algorithms that, that are under active investigation. You know, and it, it, but the, you know, there's, it's interesting, there's another school of thought that's, that's saying, you know, we may never know, right? These systems are so complex, they're making decisions so rapidly. It's kind of like thinking, well, you know, how do we know what decision I'm going to make or you're going to make? Am I going to be able to measure and analyze your, your neurons firing off, right? So there's a whole different, you know, I think set of, of thought around, well, maybe, maybe what we should be thinking about is, is proper testing instead, right? You see how someone like Warren Buffett makes, makes decisions on investments, for example. Well, he has a long track record of, of success, clearly. So that tells me, you know, I may not know how his neurons are, are functioning, right, or something like that, but I could certainly see the results, I could see the outcomes, and to me that provides validation that the system is, is working. So we may get to the point that that is, is the best we can do in terms of understanding explainability of some of these systems, just based on the complexity and how quickly they're evolving. And Taka, I'll give you just 30 seconds to answer this final question. Is it also possible that over time an AI system can give a different result than it did earlier on, but in fact that later different result is actually closer to the truth? Yeah, and there are well-documented examples of that. When you know Microsoft implemented some chatbots, it actually learned from the worst of the internet, right? Because it deployed and in, in, in such a great scale. Uh, so there's a delineation between the training model that we use to develop individual machine learning versus at a systemic level when we go into production, the results may look very different. And part of that is making sure that there's a continuous monitoring regime in place both for the program side, but also for the oversight community as well. We can't just every 24 months decide to do an audit of an AI system. It needs to be some form of continuous auditing. All right, well, you've all given us quite a bit to think about. I want to thank today's guests. Chris Barnett is the Chief Technology Officer for Noblis. Taka Ariga is the Chief Data Scientist and Director of the Innovation Lab at the Government Accountability Office. Rajiv Upal is the Chief Information Officer for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And Jesse Rowlands is the Strategic AI Officer at the, at the Defense, you know what, can I do the whole close again? All right. <laughs> My guests today are Chris, have, okay, I'm, I'll say the last sentence, I'll just start from the names, is that okay? Yep. Okay. Our guests have been Chris Barnett, the Chief Technology Officer for Noblis, right? Yep. Yeah, okay. I'm getting confused. Sounds it's good. Getting along here. 
Our guests today have been Chris Barnett. He's the Chief Technology Officer at Noblis. Taka Ariga is the Chief Data Scientist and Director of the Innovation Lab at the Government Accountability Office. Rajiv Upal is the Chief Information Officer for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And Jesse Rollins, an AI Strategic Officer at the Defense Logistics Agency. I'm Tom Temin. You've been listening to Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, please visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Noblis. Thank you for listening to the discussion, Implementing an AI Plan, sponsored by Noblis on Federal News Network.